Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in the Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Happy New Year, Sigs. Bonanay, happy New Year, Kuya. Yes, yes, happy New Year. We start today's episode with a back to the vault. So January, we will be spending time going back into the pop culture vault. And this episode, we're going to be spending time looking at 80s family sitcoms and families of choice. But before we do that, Sigs. Let's catch up. How were your holidays? They were fine, but let's be honest. I know you went to Vegas. I need to hear about the <laughs> food journey you went on. I'm excited. Tell me, tell me, tell me. How was oh, it? Oh, my goodness. So much to tell. Okay, so okay. Listeners, what you need to know is I was actually celebrating my birthday, and the theme was five dinners for five decades. <laughs> and so on my actual day, I actually started it at the Rain Restaurant in Toronto at oh, the Royal yeah. York Fairmount. Yeah, oh, actually, that's it was lovely. Yeah, it was really lovely. It was really bougie. Mm. We felt like we were in a country club nice. and having cocktails with my parents and my sisters and my brother-in-laws and Michael. Oh, and wonderful. Yeah, and that was just a way to start it off. But then we continued the food journey and the four other decades in Vegas. Okay. And, oh, okay. It was just decadent and delightful. And it was incredible. It was incredible. Now, I have to say we did three out of the four, and I'll explain why. But the first actually was at the Bellagio, where we did oh, the buffet. Have you ever eaten I've at the buffet at the Bellagio? I've eaten at the buffet at the Bellagio because I stayed at the Bellagio when I went mm. in 2000. Oh, God, 2007. Loved it. It's 2022 now. So tell me, what did you feast on? Like, what were the big hits? Like everything. Like oh everything. And I will say this, though, because this is like in the pandemic that we're talking about this, they did run short of lobster and king crab oh. legs and stuff like that. Interesting. So instead, they had lots and lots of oysters. Mm. But I knew not to get oysters because we were going to do that at the next place. But at the Bellagio, you name it, like every type of roasted meat we had, mm-hmm. they actually had had like this kind of like little serving of fish and chips. It was delightful. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I wish I had taken more bush. pictures and sent yeah. them your way. Like I'm just not one of these Instagram, social media people, yeah. unfortunately. That's why I have you doing all this stuff <laughs> for the podcast. But the, the short story is this, is, is that what I love about the Bellagio is their presentation and it just feels luxe, you know? Oh, like nice. I'm not a at Excalibur doing Ugh. their buffet. Yeah, no, no, no. Price that you pay, which by the way, they don't publicize right until you actually get there. So that just tells you a little bit about the expense needed to partake in the It's feast. true, it's true. It, just the presentation alone and the desserts were just endless, but they had everything like a pokey bar, they oh, had no like way. Korean bar, nice. you know, sushi bar galore, carving bar, pizza bar, you name it, they had it and it was sumptuous. I have a question for you. So when you attack Mm. How do you attack that? Do you do small plate and then a sampling of each one? Or do you go in to be like, where's the seafood? Where's the big buck items? Like, how do you deal with the Well, buffet? believe it Tell or me. not, I actually usually go to the salad first. Yeah. Then I go to the carving station and then it's whatever tickles my eyes at this point. Right. But Michael had warned me. He said, honey, do you really want to like start filling up? 
with the salad, even though the salad looked gorgeous. He was yeah, like, probably. no, let's go right for the main stuff. So we went right to the carving station. Oh, I love me. Nice. Nice. And nice. then afterwards to the seafood station mm-hmm. and then had a little bit of the pasta. Nice. Oh, it was just, it was crazy making in some ways because we had landed earlier that afternoon. Mm-hmm. I opted not to do the bottomless beverage alcohol. That's you know, smart. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. Would have wiped you. you know, it was just kind of like a little bit tired, but also really wanted to partake in this fantastic food. And it was just flowing and you know, no wait times, even though we came like on a Friday night and it was oh, like that's not bad. Yeah, it was not oh, bad. Friday, and we got in right away. I was worried about actually getting a reservation that day. You can't get a reservation at the buffet. You don't need a reservation at the buffet, but I was thinking of anywhere else. And I just thought, let's just do the buffet. And plus it's gonna be at the Bellagio. And then afterwards we went and toured the conservatory and it was all Christmas splendor and it was just fantastic. And they had the Coca-Cola bears up on display and it felt so magical. But then this was the best part. The best part was, is, is that afterwards we walk out and we thought before we go back to our resort, let's go look at the fountains. And as we went out, Mm They were full on display as we were hearing "Let It Snow" Michael Bublé style. So it just oh, felt so the music magical. So nice. So yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. So it was a great second dinner for a second decade of my life, and it was quite memorable that way. The second dinner, the next day, okay. so on Saturday. Oh my gosh, we went to the Cosmopolitan, and it yes. was at a place called Beauty in Essex. I don't know if you've been. I've never Beauty. tell me Beauty in Essex. That's yeah. A name. So Beauty okay. in Essex, the way you find it actually, and, and the whole theme at the Cosmopolitan these days are speakeasies. So you go to this place called Beauty in Essex. When you go in, it's a pawn shop. <laughs> it's kind of like their take on, what is it, Pawn Stars or whatever that yeah. reality television show mm-hmm. is. And so you go in and you can actually buy stuff there. And in fact, I almost bought a collector's edition of a Stormtrooper portrait, believe it or oh not. I came that close just to kind of treat myself. But we were there actually for the food. So you go into this pawn shop, okay. but you go to the left side of the counter and you open the door and then... It's suddenly this restaurant, which is actually Beauty in Essex. That's cool. It was beautiful. It was Mm. sumptuous. It had like purple velvet, you know, walls. They had multiple rooms, chandelier, lots of dark lighting. And it was really indulgent. And their whole theme was shareables. Okay. When it's shareables, typically either everyone needs to be decisive in terms of what they're going to order or you get one person to order it. And so I said, I want to order. So I ordered for the entire table. And so we started it off with Pearls of the Sea, which were basically a dozen oysters and a number of shrimp cocktails and a pound of lobster and a quarter pound of Alaskan king crab. (laughs) When you said Pearls of the Sea, I was like, okay, so like a couple oysters? No, that was like... The Pearl of the Orient. Like, that's it, yeah, it, it really was the Pearl of the Orient. It was fantastic. It yeah. was fantastic. And it was on two levels, too. Oh, no way! It was okay. on two level six. It was How just, did you it not was take beyond. a picture of this? I think my brother-in-laws took a picture of this. Okay. And it was just fantastic. And then it was so wonderfully timed. Like, I was just starstruck by the service because... You know, we would eat off and then there would be all the shells that were left behind. And then as they took off the two-tier server, they took away our plates and then replaced them with other plates and then started the parade of all the stuff that I had ordered for the table. And so, oh my gosh, we had like a whole bunch of stuff. We had these grilled cheese, smoked bacon and tomato soup dumplings. That sounds delicious. Oh, it was so delicious. That sounds so good. 
and there was enough for everyone to go around. So nice. the server was just fantastic. She was like, you know, I will make sure that everybody gets the bite. You don't have to worry about or ordering the quantity. We make sure that everybody gets a bite of that. That's a good restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had these oven braised chicken meatballs that were dipped in sheep's milk ricotta. And also oh. with wild mushrooms and truffle. Oh, again, I was like living my best bougie life at this point. It was pretty crazy. And then we had these chicken arepas. So oh, the were, arepas. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. With salsa verde and pickled jalapenos and cilantro. Oh, oh that sounds so good. For It was to die for. But I think, and then also we got a thick cut of steak filet, you know, that was filleted for everybody. And we were able to share in that. But I think what was really, really decadent was these bone marrow baguettes. So they served out these bone marrow and then you scooped it and you put it on kind of the equivalent of a garlic cheese bread. Mm -hmm. And it was just delightful. And I know that my, like I looked over at my mom and she was just in heaven and they just kept flowing and throughout the night. And then we ordered the Ferris wheel of desserts. So if you ever check out the Instagram of Beauty in Essex, they bring out this Ferris wheel of desserts and it's all lit up because it's dark lighting, but it was just wonderful. So it was really decadent. It was really wonderful. And I I actually, when I get back to Vegas, I'm going back there again. I couldn't get enough of it. And it's just wonderful. Like they just keep serving things. You know, if you have eight people, then you order eight shareable dishes. If you've That's got nice. like, yeah. So it was really wonderful. They had enough for everybody. And were you uh, full after? Like, were you able yeah. to? That's good because so that, sometimes so the, that happens, right? When you go yeah, to those places. My brother-in-law and Michael have a lot bigger appetites than all of us at the table, and it was like no problem. It was like, can we just get a, like another set of the chicken meatballs? Then we're like, yep, and they had it within seconds. And then nice. Place, yeah, and then we were able to move on to the desserts and it was like no problem at all and then the drinks they were very much kind of like oh anything that you want mm. we'll make for you and so I think a couple of them a couple of people had pink panthers and <laughs> my brother-in-laws had some wood glen drinks and stuff like that and some whiskeys it was really decadent is the way that I would probably describe beauty in Essex I can't tell you more about it except that and you got to go online just to look at the pictures i'm going to for the first wheel why not yeah yeah now the interesting thing in all of this is for the first two dinners in vegas or the second and third dinners in vegas of my five dinners for five decades theme was a little subdued and my sisters had noticed this and what i had not realized was days before i was actually falling ill oh no yeah and so i woke up on the sunday not feeling my best Mm -hmm. and it was like i had a bit of a stomach flu. But the good news is, is, is that it only lasted or culminated in one day because certainly That's the good. next day on the Monday, I felt better. But on the Sunday, we had to postpone. And I was really bummed out by that because that third dinner would have been the Carver Steakhouse. Uh-huh. And what the original plan was to order a couple of tomahawk steaks because <laughs> it's the first time I would have been able to order a tomahawk steak for like a crew of people and then all the sides. Mm-hmm. So we never got to go to the Carver Steakhouse so that's still kind of like on my dream. And I technically owe, or to fulfill, if you will, my theme, I still need to take my family out for one more dinner. But that was the <laughs> hope, right? Yeah. But thankfully, I was better the next day and ended up going to Martha Stewart's The Bedford at Paris, Paris. Oh, tell me. Oh, my God. Okay, so... First of all, we get there and they have a dining table for eight by the kitchen. So it felt like we were at a chef's table and it was like fully marbled. And it was like, oh my God, I practically feel like 
I'm at Martha Stewart's personal table. The only problem was is, is that if you're a taller person like Michael, mm. your legs automatically go up to this counter height table and get squished between the chair. So it wasn't really configured for anyone like him, if you mm. will, or anyone taller. So we had to ask if we could find a different table. And so they found us a different table. And it was a little bumming to kind of like be moved somewhere else. It was just a beautiful table, but it was just not constructed well. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly enough, the hosts had told us it's true. You know, like we get a lot of complaints about that table. So we're not able to sit a lot of people there. Yeah. So don't feel bad because we were like, oh, we're so sorry for yeah. having you reconfigure your entire restaurant. And they're like, this is not a problem. It's not a problem. We feel bad that we can't accommodate you right away. Right. When they finally sat us down, Oh my gosh, we had a Filipino server. Oh my God, right? the best. And nice. she took so good care of us. Her name was Rochelle. So <laughs> shout out to Rochelle. Hey, if Rochelle. If you ever hear this podcast, she was great because she would ham it up with my parents and then was really chummy with me and my sisters and, and with Michael. But oh my God, it was refined and elevated dining at its best. And we decided to do family stuff. Okay, yeah. And so I ordered their special roast chicken. Mm-hmm. And their roast chicken, like they stuff it underneath the skin with like special butter and herbs throughout, mm-hmm. and then they carve it tableside sigs in front so of you. Bring it, yeah, oh. in front of you. It was fantastic. And so, you know, my brother-in-law took the video of it, but it was just like, wow, great service. And then ordered a bunch of sides and a bunch of cocktails, and it was like a wonderful way to round out our like dinners in Vegas. So, so nice. And that is another place that I. Would I would come back again. I can't get out of my head the taste of the potato puree. Not mashed potato sigs, potato puree. So what's the diff? Is it like lighter? Is it, it like, is what's smooth, the texture? It is creamy and you can taste the thyme. And if you're oh, very wow. curious about this, I ask any of the listeners out there to just YouTube Martha Stewart potato puree. And okay. let me tell you, in 52 Easy Steps, will you get the silky, <laughs> delicious, you know, overpriced potato puree? But I figured it out as to why a side dish of potato puree costs $24. Because I made it this past weekend. Okay. And let me tell you, Sigs. So what you got to do is you have to steam russet potatoes. Full? Not boil. No, not, not boil. Yeah. Steam the russet potato. In a double boiler. You would just like have the heat up just to steam them. That's all. For how long? For 30 minutes. Okay. You then need to let them dry to completion. That's a while. And then at the same time while you're doing that, you should then be making brown butter. So as you're making brown butter, you then have to pass the brown butter through a sieve with a cheesecloth with crushed garlic and thyme. And you would think to yourself, passing brown butter through this concoction, would it make a difference? Let me tell you, Sigs, it makes all the difference. Oh my goodness. So then you pour it through and it starts to crackle. And then you have to add all this whipping cream and milk to your brown butter that's been infused with thyme and garlic. That probably smells so good. And then you have to keep it warm while you're actually now putting through a sieve, not once, not twice, but three times. So you have to take all of your potatoes right. and mash it through a, a sieve. fine sieve. 
And then you once you pass it through the sieve, you do it again a second time with a finer sieve and then probably a third time if you've got it. Now, we cheated a little bit and we put it through a potato ricer, but it didn't come That's out warmer. as smooth. So yeah. you have to actually put it through a sieve. And it was just like, wow, this is French-style mashed potatoes. That's so they don't totally call French. it French-style. Yeah. It's potato puree. And then as you've got the final potato puree consistency, that's when you add the warm milk to all of it at the same time. And everything has to be warm for it to come out creamy and smooth. And so that's why I can't get out of my head this potato puree. And I had to try. And it was interesting because it was like, oh, she's got the recipe online. But when I saw it, I'm like, oh, my God, no one would make this unless you had loads and loads of time. Let me tell you, Six, it took Michael and myself to Mm. make a batch for New Year's Eve for our family. How long? Two and a half hours. (laughs) <laughs> to make. So the reason why the, these mashed potatoes or these potato purees at the Martha Stewart Bedford restaurant cost so much, which is worth it, mm. is the labor that you have to put into well, it. Well, that sounds so like to put it through a step. The only other person I could think that doing this would be actually Tara Bedford, our, our friend, friend that Tara. would probably take the yeah. time yeah, yeah, to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. But wow. let me tell you, worth Tastes it good? because when we made it for ourselves, it was like, oh my God, this is delicious. But it's even more delicious as someone making for you. But it was worth it. It was just like, oh my God, this is golden. Like this is genius in terms of you know how to serve mashed potatoes. I am I'm very compelled and I'm going to be looking up these things after we record because I'm very <laughs> compelled. Fifty two easy steps, but with a sieve and a sieve, like yeah. that's not like that's French cooking. That's that's, that's really very French cooking French at cooking. its best. Well and and I mean yeah. rightfully so and positioned at Paris. Oh, and absolutely. So, like I would expect nothing less from Martha. Yeah, it was exceptional American, right? As they would say, you know, Emily in Paris style here. So it was a great dining experience. Again, really refined. It was really elevated in terms of, you know, family style dining. And again, came in and I said to my family, do you want me to order for the entire table? And they said, sure, Koya, go ahead. And so then that's exactly what we did. So we had a bunch of roast chicken and a bunch of sides. And one of them was just the potato puree. And the bread basket was fantastic. Bread basket was... What type of breads was it? There was some focaccia in it. Then there was like this kind of flat cracker with lots of fresh vegetables in it, like with oh. tomato and leeks and stuff like that. It was, if you Google all of it on YouTube or find it on YouTube, yeah. it's all there. But it was just like, oh, I couldn't recommend it enough. And so Michael and I are like, oh, we get back to Vegas. We're going back to the Bedford. Those potatoes sound out to die for. Yeah, like, you need to check them out on YouTube and our listeners need to check them out in 52 easy steps. The two last things to say about this trip and <clears> you know my extended celebration of my birthday and again, five dinners for five decades <laughs> was in between, we also went to the egg slut at the Cosmopolitan. Yum. Filipino, Very yum. yum. Filipino, yum. It was wonderful. It was to die for. Expensive, but I, again, it was just worth every penny that we spent, American penny that we spent on, you know, <laughs> yeah. on our on our breakfast there. Yeah. And then the last part was we stayed at the Alara Hilton Grand Vacation Club, right. part of the Planet Hollywood complex, and it was a four bedroom villa that we stayed in, and it was just oh luxe. nice, yeah. So it was really nice. So everyone had their own section. My parents attached to. Our villa was actually like a full junior one-bedroom apartment that my parents had. So, oh, nice. And at 1.6, like we're in the main living area. My sisters and I were drinking it up because we had stocked up the fridge with some alcohol. Yeah. And at some point, my parents went away and locked their room and locked us out. So we couldn't even get into the room if we wanted Abba. to. <laughs> 
They're like, we're, we're done with the kids. Oh my God, that's so but funny. Yeah, it was wonderful. So it was a really nice, stylish way to celebrate my five decades for five dinners and stuff like that. That's, I still have to make it up, but yeah, that's... That's, that's so wonderful for you to just like spend time with your family and just enjoy it. That sounds yeah, so great. It was really wonderful. It was just nice being with, again, family, which is really kind of the topic of today's main episode, which is really about family and family sitcoms and and families of choice. And so, so Sigs, my question for you is, you know, when you think about family sitcoms of the 80s, what's the first television show that you usually I think of Family Ties. And I just, selfishly, when you and I planned Back to the Vault, I was like, let's just do low-hanging fruit is like the sitcoms. <laughs> and I think you and I are, from a time where television was a privilege for us to watch at 8 p.m., there was mm. tons of shows for us in growing up in the 80s and 90s to watch. And there's so many that really tickle my fancy. I know we're going to be talking about it. I automatically think Family Ties, boom. Mm. If people are not familiar with this, and I forget we do have listeners of varying ages. Of course, yes. Um, family Ties was basically a study of raising children in the 80s. You have a family of five, which becomes six eventually. Parents are Elise and Steven, who are hippies. Mm, that's right. Originally raising their three children, Alex, Mallory, and Jennifer, and later their son, Andy. Alex right. was a symbol of the 80s. He was very Reaganomics. He was a Republican. Right. Mallory was like the original mall girl, yes. you know, and Jennifer was like this young, bright, youngest sibling, blonde haired. And then Andy eventually came in, I guess, to push the plot lines for young. What I liked about Family Ties, it was just... It was such a touchstone because that snapshot of the 80s, Alex really symbolized the me decade. Yes, about, he did. I want to go out there. I want to earn money. My things are conservative. The president was Ronald Reagan. Right. Elise and Stephen were just like, okay, we're these hippies trying to, our son wants to become a yuppie. And they're just trying to deal with this parenting. And very simple, right? We, The premise of the show, like, it has a picture of a painting of them. And if you hear, like, the soundtrack, like, the theme song, just brings you back. And I just, it was such a sample. A very clean, I mean, a white family. Yes. Not very diverse, but... But we're talking about the 80s here. Exactly. When did we see other, like, mixed or representation happening? But it was such a symbol. And I also like the fact that the parent, Stephen, was actually from Buffalo. Yes, and that's always, right. Do you remember we always mentioned that? And there was a bit of a link that. to us because we're from southern Ontario. So, right. oh, we know about the winters and stuff like that. And I don't know if I specified where they were from, but it was just like, you know what I mean? Like, middle America. Where yeah, they snowed. were middle America. I yeah. always felt like that they were in Ohio, but I'm not actually like certain where too. they were from. Like, I don't even think like that they mentioned it. Maybe. They, they did, kept it pretty but broad, I don't really broad. know. Because they had to like travel. To, they talked about going traveling to Buffalo and stuff. Like yeah. but, they, but it was seasonal because I remember them doing that. But like it was interesting. They tackled a lot about growing up and such. And there was one episode that I'm thinking of, but I think you're going to talk about it a little bit. Like what was the main cultural impact that you Yeah, you when saw? I think about like the main cultural impact of family ties, it was really kind of thinking about the tension. Ironically enough, is actually more of a divide today, but back in the 80s, a tension from liberalism to conservatism. And so, of course, as you were just mentioning a moment ago, how Ronald Reagan was president at the time, mm-hmm. and that was, a, I guess, a role model for Alex B. Keaton. <laughs> it was really looking at how does liberalism interact with conservatism at the end of the day. And you would see Alex P. Keaton of course, representing the conservative values as opposed to what you were talking about, the hippie Elise and Stephen, who were very much liberal. And then, of course, there would always be kind of this six-act story structure of 
Alex coming up with a scheme where the profit motive has been introduced, right. you know, where he can get rich somehow. And then it leads to shenanigans and ultimately leads to Alex needing to apologize in front of Stephen and Elise. Again, hijinks ensues and then that happens. But when you think about it, it's like, wow, that totally was a precursor of things to come in terms of where we are today when we look at the cultural divide and the culture wars that we're seeing. So yeah, so I think it's like a harbinger, if you will, of what, what was to come in this constant dynamic and tension, but now probably divide between these two culture camp. It was sort of interesting because even Alex was trying to be comfortable, like even with the ERA, which was like the Equal Rights Act. Mm, that's it's right. about women, you know, equal rights for people, for women mostly. And he was trying, I remember him trying to woo a girl because he's like, yeah, you say ERA, I say YES. And everyone's like, you're lying. You're very <laughs> conservative. And that was sort of the joke. And he always teased Mallory for being sort of like a, a ditz, but she was very bright on the other side. But they talked about a lot of like, you know, growing up at school, going to college, crushes, Mallory having the boyfriend, Nick, who's sort of from right. the other side of the tracks. Like, But I think clearly the episode that really sticks out of my mind is there was a two-part episode which I'm pretty sure Michael J. Fox won an Emmy for called mm. My Name is Alex and he has a one-on-one it's basically him talking to a, a psychiatrist his friend had committed suicide mm. and he was dealing with it and right. what was great it was little vignettes of him and in the background it would light up with like him and Elise when he was a little kid right. or how he described Mallory he described Jennifer he described Andy yeah. and just really owning up like I'm angry because I lost my friend right. and it was very dramatic and I remember seeing this. Like my mom asked me, "Do you have any questions about suicide?" And I'm like, "Don't know." I think I remember my mom saying, "You know, it's funny because you always will have questions." Yeah. And it was him talking out. It became serious. There was some comedy in it, but it was so impactful where you were just like, "Oh wow!" Like bare bones. Him just trying to come to the fact that he lost a friend. Right. And right, how do you right, wade right. through those waters? I don't know if you remember that episode. I, just I thought, do remember I, really that. I do remember that. It was quite a serious episode. It was less comedy, yeah. more seriousness. And, you know, I think Family Ties wasn't afraid to kind of tackle tough topics. Oh, just yeah. like most of the family sitcoms of this particular decade. The other thing that I remember also, too, was I remember there was lots of talk about how this show was supposed to be a vehicle of Meredith Baxter Bernie, who it played was. Elise the Mother. And it ended up was. becoming more about Alex and Michael J. Fox. Because yeah. I think that that's kind of where the humor and the poignancy and the tension all arose. In some ways, I remember identifying with Alex in the sense that it's like, oh, he's getting in trouble for some creative idea. Yeah. And then at the same time, having to kind of apologize. But it's interesting now when I watch it, or if I watch it off of YouTube or catch it on some Christian television network or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Because that's usually where it's playing on reruns. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting is, is, is that I don't necessarily identify with Alex anymore. It's more with Elise and Stephen, you know, in terms of their liberal values and kind of like where that kind of comes from. So it's interesting how just even tracking kind of who identified to who I identify with now when watching that show, it's like, wow, the values. Like I didn't realize how much the profit motive that Alex had actually screws things up for a lot of people, (laughs) you know, along the way. Speaking of the kind of like profit motive, something that when I think of in terms of family sitcoms, one of the ones that kind of came up a lot and partly because I had a crush on Ricky Schroeder, <laughs> right? <laughs> Is Silver Spoons, right? Do you remember Silver Spoons? Did you I ever do. watch it? I've watched, you name a show, I've watched it. I know I'm this. Sure. I know the song. Yeah. Tell our listeners about the show because I yeah, don't think the, everyone's heard of it. 
Yeah, so the premise behind Silver Spoons is that there's discovery that a man-child millionaire toy maker whose name is Edward, played by Joel Higgins, has a son, mm-hmm. played by Ricky Schroeder, from an impulsive week-long marriage that he had had. And then when the couple separated, it comes out years later when Ricky's being sent to boarding school that Edward has a son. And the reason why Ricky's being sent to boarding school is because his mom is remarried and is starting a new life. So it's like, wow, double abandonment in some ways. Exactly. When you kind of think about the premise, like you didn't really think too much about it, but today it's just kind of like, wow, that seems really preposterous. For the fact that Ricky Schroeder's character, the son, very much was organized, was really the parent, actually, when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And throughout the entire series, it was about... Edward becoming much more responsible while having much more fun in his life. But I think what I remember the most is that there was this kind of iconic train that ran through the mansion that everyone would constantly be on from time to time. Do you remember that? There was a train. And also, do you remember how they answered the front door? No. How did they? It was a remote. He would open (gasps) it, right? And then (laughs) what was their phone in the shape of? It wasn't a football. It was a mallard. It was a duck. <laughs> I remember that. Like, I remember those things, like, yeah, clearly. Yeah, details, like, right? He'd open yeah. this door, and he was this, he didn't realize. Like, I mean, his mother was rich also because she was in boarding school, and she was friends right. with Gloria Vanderbilt, etc. But it was interesting because this was a portrayal of upper class but divorced parents. Right. And, yeah. and you didn't see that. We're like, oh, okay. And the males, usually not the female. Right. 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 And, and he had that stodgy grandfather that actually was trying to make a connection with, right? Yes. And he was very like the British and he tried to call him Gramps and stuff. That's right. That's um, right. It, it was so interesting because I was like, oh, this is so, you don't usually see a it male parent. It yeah. totally was, it different. was different. Like that's part of the cultural impact. The fact yeah. that we were seeing divorce and that it wasn't necessarily the mom Right? That's right. That was taking care of the child. It was the dad. And also this idea that, you know, typically when we see a meddling kid, the reason why they're meddling is usually because they're trying to have fun or they're being selfish. Mm-hmm. But actually, in this case, Ricky was actually being very helpful. And oh, in fact, yeah. that was like the whole premise of the pilot where mm-hmm. he kind of catches how his dad's staff or one of his accountants was actually embezzling from That's all exactly of them. That's exactly it. Oh my you God, know? yeah. Yeah, it was when you think about that, it was like him actually meddling was actually being helpful. So it was a flip on the idea or reversal on the idea that that meddling kids are actually helpful in this case. And it was a different way of portraying kids and that elders could actually benefit from the wisdom of kids. Because usually when you kind of see these, when you think about these kid sidekicks or kid siblings, they usually cause some type of havoc, just like Alex was causing havoc for Elise and Steven. But in this case, it was the other way around. So that's kind of what I took away from Silver Spoons. But I think, sorry, you were going to say something. No, I just also, from Silver Spoons, like we were introduced... Alfonso Ribeiro. That's right. His, he makes it was an one of his buddies, there, right? right? Yeah. And he was just hot off the heels of dancing with Michael Jackson. And that's right. They put the dance yeah. And that's what I always think of. And there was a female, Edward was with, I forgot Kate. the, Kate, Kate, played yeah. by Erin Gray, who was beautiful and lovely. Right. And I always thought, like, she ended up becoming... She became um, the conscious a, a conscience, of Edward. Yeah. And they end up getting married and stuff like that. And then they have this wonderful blended family towards the end. Exactly. For me, kind of iconic family sitcom of the 80s also was Growing Pains. Ah, 
Yeah, yeah. And so for those of our listeners that don't know Growing Pains, the premise behind that is it's a former stay-at-home mom, Maggie Seaver, goes back to work as a journalist, leaving her husband, Jason Seaver, to move his therapy practice to home and raise their <laughs> kids, which in this case were Mike, played by Kirk Cameron, Carol, and Ben. And I don't know, like, I know that that played constantly in our household and even in the reruns would we constantly watch it, but there were just all these shenanigans and Kirk was just fantastic too, but he was just like a different version of like the older son just kind of getting into trouble and stuff like that. So more of like an anti Alex yeah. Keaton. Yeah. He really was that. an antidote and an anti yeah. to him. Yeah. And before in the eighties where no one was like familiar with Kirk Cameron's, I don't know, <laughs> belie- current beliefs, which are don't really gel right now. But right. you have to say, like, folks, you'll listen to this in our warm up. I think Jason Seaver was was a great dad figure. Totally, totally. And, you know, when he had passed away and the cast of Growing Pains was just kind of commenting it, they were saying how much also he was a father figure off the set. Too, yes. you know, like he just gave really good advice mm-hmm. and wasn't judgmental in a lot of ways. And so, and I think to myself, yeah, I think he became America's favorite dad at some point. He certainly was. And Alan Thicke has a history with all these sitcoms. They're all tied in. Right. And we'll be talking some more too. He was also one of the writers for all the theme songs. So yes, Growing Pains, right. Facts of Life, like him yes, and Gloria right. Loring singing together. Like he had, he was a big link. Growing Pains tackled, you know, the usual fare of growing up. Loves and crushes and growing up. But there were some episodes that I totally... They talked about fears I had as a little kid. So I think they went out for dinner or something one night. They came back and their house was being... Their house was all wrecked. They're like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, I remember that. And do you remember Maggie yeah. goes, Jason, the coffee's still warm. So they all got out of the house. So someone had burglarized their house. Yeah, that's right. And it really scared them. I'm like, oh my God, that... It was so, I was like, that is so real. Yeah. And a fear where I'm like, oh, I'm surprised they they talked about this. And it was just, to me, it was real. And it's something that, you know, kids think about. Like, oh, my God, you know, we're not all superheroes. Like, we're, we could deal with something as crazy as like a burglary at a house. Right, right. Mm -hmm. The other important thing about Growing Pains is really it signaled the return of women back into the workforce in North America. Yeah. And the concept of stay-at-home dads. So just as much as kind of Silver Spoons was showing how in this case, dad who had primary custody of Ricky and raising Ricky just as much as Jason was raising the kids at home. Mm -hmm. It really kind of said, hey, dads, you have to be a parental figure here. You can't just be the breadwinner in a lot of ways. And then in and around the same time, do you remember that movie, Mr. Mom with Michael Michael Keaton? Keaton. Yeah, I totally remember that from the 80s. You know, and so that was like a constant thing that I remember kind of being portrayed in pop culture at the time saying, like almost this messaging of dads have to be parent figures in in a lot of ways. Now, the interesting part, Sigs, about these kind of three 80s family sitcoms that we're talking about is that they have a take on a traditional definition of family, Mm -hmm. which of course kind of like this nuclear family or this family of blood, you know, where they're all related by blood. But I have to say that that can be a really kind of narrow definition these days of family. Oh, yeah. And when I think about it, and I know that when we've talked about it off air, right, that family is really about a group of you know, two or more people living together or apart. And as far as I'm concerned, whether they're they're either bonded together through blood, mm-hmm. you know, like a traditional North American family could be, or commitment 
or marriage or adoption or any combination of, of those. And that kind of leads us to our culture capital topic of the week, because I know that we just finished the holiday season. And sometimes when our friends have seen our family celebrate, it's like, these are all your family. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. yes and no, like not in terms of blood sometimes, but certainly in other ways, such as commitment or adoption or marriage. But quite often Filipino culture emphasizes family. And I think today's kind of culture capital topic is really kind of meditating on this idea of what does family mean? So Sigs, for you, like what does family mean? I think it means both. Yeah. You know, I think I am very lucky that I have a family related by blood and a union of Mm. marriage that unites me and have wonderful children. But even more, the people that became my chosen family, which includes you and Mm. Tara and my Ottawa friends, I'm very lucky. I think it's built on that. And I think I know you'll get into it a little bit more when we talk about honorifics. I think you build that. And I think it's wonderful that I am blessed. We are both blessed that our family lines are extended. Yeah. And I feel, I think you could probably talk about this more. I feel it's very strong in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about more because someone had mentioned a question to me like, why are uncles and all that stuff? And my mom had told me younger, she's like, I really don't want you to call these people by their first name. So let's put a a modifier on the way you say uncle, auntie, tita with it as a sign of respect. And that eventually becomes more family. It is. And in some ways, kind of like what your mom has required, you know, of you. And I would say that my family has required that of us in terms of calling their friends, like uncles and aunts or titos mm-hmm. and titas. Or by extension, when I'm out with my Filipino friends that have cousins, like, you know, I'll call them cuyas or ates or whatever right. the case may be. It's really extending the bloodline even further and making us believe and now I think rightfully so that we're all related in some way, shape, or form. Anytime anyone comes to a Filipino fam jam, that becomes quite evident right. where we then get people say, are they all your uncles? Are they all your aunts? And stuff like that. And yeah. they're like, no, no, not really. But the beauty of it is it just kind of creates familiarity, you know, which is very similar to family. Mm-hmm. And also implies that our fellow Kababayans or our compatriots are our family. And I think that it signals a commitment to our culture or involves what we've talked about in other podcasts, you know, by Anian. At the lowest end, <laughs> sometimes we treat our Kababayans as family because it's a way of asking for a discount. But at the highest end, it's kind of what you and your mother were talking about as a way of showing respect. So yeah, like sometimes when I'm at restaurant or fast food counter and I notice that the person might be Filipino and I hear them maybe talking Filipino to yeah. a coworker, I'll talk back and I'll say, but you know, can I have this or whatever, yeah. you know, or salamat ate siya, right? Yeah. You know, Sa- thank you po or whatever Sa- the case may be. Do you remember, right? I think on the podcast like a couple years ago, I think when we first started, I've had a lot of people call me kuya at a Tim Hortons I used to go to near my work. Mm. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, if they call me kuya, I go, what is, what do I say in response? And then remember you said, you could say cuz. Cuz. And they were know. like, and they respond to it and I'm the same way and yeah. sometimes the eyes like oh salamat po like we're sorry we're so busy I'm like no it's okay salamat thank you and it becomes that by any spirit like oh do you have everything you need like just like you had the server in Las Vegas yeah she must yeah. be like oh hey what's up she totally like, it's great it up I, to love my it. Parents. I love yeah, it totally and my parents were totally eating it up in, at yeah. the same time this is kind of related by blood and in mm. some ways thinking that our fellow compatriots are also related to us by blood because they're fellow 
compatriots or buy-in folk. But when we think about the other ways that people can be bonded through marriage, commitment, and adoption, we can also see how they can become fodder for Filipino gossip. Mm. So if a child is born out of wedlock, sometimes known as a naksalabas, mm-hmm. an illegitimate child, and that sometimes kind of calls for a shotgun marriage. You oh, know, that's if, such a term. Yeah. You know, or same-sex relationships aren't recognized. I've had this before, like where people don't reference Michael as my partner. You're his they, you friend. Know, they, you're they, friend. They, they say, your friend. friend. Mo, right? <laughs> How is your friend, right? You know, and I would have to gently <laughs> say, oh, you mean my partner, right? Or, yeah. or at least call him Michael. It doesn't happen anymore, but I would say maybe 15 years ago, it would be more like, how's your friend, right? <laughs> Because it would be strange, I think, for them to say asawa, you know, right? Like, I think that in their minds, I can't ask you that question or I can't frame it that way. But all revolves on how these choices to commit to another is seen as illegitimate. So shotgun marriages, it's a choice to make something legitimate in terms of Mm -hmm. the situation that that maybe that couple has faced in terms of unexpected pregnancy and that they're not married or calling the child a naksalabas. That actually means illegitimate child or not being able to say partner because there's something illegitimate about your relationship. And when I think about what does it mean illegitimate, it simply just means that the law does not authorize whatever it is that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about being on moral ground, but then there's something on legal ground here. But do we really need the laws to kind of legitimize some of what we've talked about in a lot of ways? And I think Filipino culture really dissuades family of choices based on whether they think it's legitimate or not. And I think that this is kind of where I think Filipinos in the diaspora can learn a little bit from pop culture. Because in as much as we were talking about these kind of traditional nuclear families in the 80s family sitcoms, Sigs, I'm sure you know of a couple of family sitcoms that didn't necessarily revolve around bloodlines defining family, right? Well, I, exactly. And it makes me laugh because these are from the 80s and you'd think that they would have just come from like the 90s or now. So Different Strokes was a sitcom I used to watch and the main premise was the misadventures of a wealthy Manhattan family who adopt the children of their late African-American housekeeper from Harlem. Mm-hmm. So Philip Drummond, right. a widowed Manhattan millionaire and the president of the mega firm called Trans Allied, adopts two African-American orphans, eight-year-old Arnold, played by <laughs> Gary Coleman and 12 year old Willis played by Todd Bridges and he has a daughter named Kimberly previously um, no wife and he had like a housekeeper so it's an example of a blended family yes. typical lessons on family life growing up especially with the fact that two black kids white adoptive father how do they navigate that and a lot of it was Arnold going to school and trying to keep up with friends and you know what they're fish out of water their right. mom used to work for Mr. Drummond and right. they start growing up like oh okay we're catching up with other people we're going to a private school right. and their adjustments to it and this clearly that a family a blended family adopted right. all of a sudden right I know Good Times was from the 70s where they had an all black class the Jeffersons were from the 70s but the 80s is of like oh okay now I'm not going to play in the fact of the white savior symbol, but it was interesting to see. And everyone loved Arnold. You'd always have that catchphrase, which talking talking about about Willis. Willis. (laughs) And someone had said it in a meeting of my coworker. And I'm like, I don't think anyone knows what that means. (laughs) When when they talk to like 26 year olds, I'm like, they don't know different strokes, which great song. Great song. Driven strokes to rule the world. Mm. (laughs) I I had to put that in there. But what was interesting, aside from like those daily lessons of the week, it had serious 
scary lessons. I don't yeah. know if you remember. There was a thing where they were told not to hitchhike. So yeah. Kimberly, Dudley, their friend Dudley, and Arnold hitchhiked, and they were picked up by a molesterer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember and that kid, episode. And yes, it scared yes. the crap out of me. And even to now, I would never hitchhike. No, like, please don't. And, it just, and I'm like, this is a comedy. Like, how are we getting the serious? And they, they talked about drugs and other sex crimes. Uh, drugs where, in the fact, remember Nancy Reagan had the no say no to drugs movement? Yeah, they yeah, had her yeah. on the show right. and they talked about it. But, yeah, total example of, like, a blended family, which we hadn't seen before on right. television depicted. The other show I think of, Chosen Family, did you ever watch Facts of Life? Of course. Families of choice. Now, the premise is, this was actually a spinoff. The housekeeper from Different Strokes, Edna Garrett, played by the lovely Charlotte Ray, rest in peace. She became a house mother at a dormitory at Eastland School, a private all-girls school in Peekskill, New York. So at the first season, they had eight girls, which included Blair, Natalie, and the lovely Tootie, played by Kim Field, Mm -hmm. and Molly Ringwald. The next season, they made it to a smaller bunch. They became on campus, and basically it was Edna Garrett being like a house mother to Tootie, Natalie. Blair and Joe. Joe Polachek, played by Nancy McKeon, who came in as like a rough and tumble type of like tomboy who's super bright. And it was them growing up. Now, they all had families of their own, but they were all together their own family. Growing up, this is an all-female cast dealing with growing up through high school, body images, university. Like, they became a family together. And they followed their adventure from Eastland to Langley College. And again, they also talked about serious stuff, not just the crushes of the week, looking for the looks aren't everything. But I remember once where Natalie was attacked right, coming home. Right. Do you remember, remember that? that? And that then they, were, yeah. they, they had someone come in, teach them how to defend themselves and right. body weight issues. And I think Tootie even dealt with colorism and shadism and racism. And it was just really interesting. And they naturally evolved and they ended up moving off campus and she owned Edna's Edibles. It became another show called Over Our Heads, which was like a kitschy shop. And then she left and they had the other aunt played by Cloris Wish and Beverly. Later on. Yeah, Beverly and after. But again, it was just four girls becoming women, growing up together, and being a family of choice and being each other's lives. So you saw that it was just as family-oriented as these other sitcoms, and they were just navigating through. And I thought, total family of choice. Yeah, and then these two pop culture examples where families of choice can be legitimate and can be functioning and can be loving. And it makes me just think that if choices don't harm others or children and, in fact, enhance people's lives, you know, shouldn't those choices be held in the same regard as those, you know, relating to blood in terms of how we categorize family? That's true. So yeah. that's what I think. And I think who we choose to be in our families of choice usually takes time, thought, to contemplate, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to adopt, you know, you have to kind of go through an adoption study. And these oh, yeah. days when, of course, you're going through marriage, most times they suggest going through a prep course of sorts. <laughs> and that the reason why these family of choices our family of choice can sometimes sometimes be even better from our family of origins or, or families based on blood is, is, is that there's been good time developing trust that sometimes I don't think is really always taken up in family of origins where blood has been the reason why you're family. That's a really good, really good point about yeah, families of choice yeah. versus family by blood. Yeah, and I think, I hope in the next decade to come, our culture moves towards kind of honoring that family of choice not just by blood, can be legitimate, whether it be mm-hmm. through adoption, commitment, or any other type of devotion to other people, and that we honor each other's choices on who we choose to be part of our family. So that's really a fixing of the week and a way to start off our new year and our entry back into the vault this month. 
January. I think that's the best way to put it, and a great excuse for you and I to talk about 80s family sitcoms. Totally. <laughs> Tell us what your family sitcoms that you love. Email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com. The Holo Holo Podcast is again available on all podcast platforms. Rate us, subscribe, leave a review. You can find us on social media, Twitter, our handles at holoholopop, and on Instagram at holoholopopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelter Ringen, and we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you guys soon.